And uh, if you're staying out here in the main service, uh, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 8, Genesis chapter 8, um, we'll probably be a little bit shorter than usual this evening as uh, we, I didn't have, I had too much to fit into what we had last week, but not quite enough to fill up a whole service for this week. So, um, but that's okay. These, these are sort of marathon sermons that we have here on Sunday evenings, uh, so we can have a little bit of a shorter one this evening. Um, and uh, we're looking particularly again at the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. But let's, uh, before we go any further, let's seek God's face and seek his guidance through his spirit this evening. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for another opportunity we have to open your word. We thank you, Father, that when we open your word, uh, Lord, we are not just looking at uh, stories. We're not just looking at um, uh, just another work from the hands of men. But, Father, that we are able to look into your holy word that serves as a mirror, as a, as, as a way for us to see through a glass dimly the great glory of Christ. And Father, I pray that as we look to your word today, that we would be open and attentive to what you have for us, that we would depend upon your spirit in all things, Father. Apart from your spirit giving us freedom with your word, we can know nothing, we can learn nothing, we can grow, uh, we cannot grow at all, but Father, Uh, As your spirit works through your word, I pray that he would um, guide and direct us uh, into your truth. I pray, Father, that we would seek to be transformed by it and molded and shaped into the image of Christ again. Father, work as only you can this evening. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. So what I thought we would do is we will pick up uh, in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 13. And then we're going to read sort of an extended period of Scripture. We're going to go through chapter 11, verse 9. And uh, sort of a little bit of an overlap of what we talked about last week regarding how um, Noah uh, was used by God to preserve creation, but also how he exercised that kingly office, that dominion. Uh, But then we're also going to see his failure here as well. So Genesis chapter 8, verse 13 It says, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, in the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. 
And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heaven, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. For it is, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. All the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their fathers. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers." He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now we come to chapter 10 everyone's favorite type of passage in Scripture, the genealogies. Uh, but I think it's important that we read these things and see what God is doing here. These are the generations of the son, sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons were born to them after the flood. 
the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togamar, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Ketim, and Dodadim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans and their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kela, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kela. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludium and Ananim, Lahabim, Naphtahuim, Pathrusim, Kalushim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphotherim. All right, I'm doing okay here. These are, these are fun, fun names. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, and the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpashad fathered Selah, and Selah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almodad, Shalith, Hazamavaeth, Jer, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these nations spread abroad, abroad on the earth after the flood. Now just a quick note about all that. So, there's a lot of names and a lot of towns that you're probably not very familiar with. And to go back, and, and, and some of these things aren't in existence today, some of these cities aren't in existence today, and so some of it is just pure conjecture as, to far, as far as to what they're, what they're um, discussing. But what is being demonstrated by Moses here is how mankind's command to be fruitful and multiply and to what? Fill the earth. That's what's going on here. Now, it's important to note that because when we come to chapter 11, we see that as mankind is 
undergoing that dominion mandate, they very quickly turn things around and seek to not have dominion over the earth, but ultimately by their multiplication, by what they've been called to do by God, they twist that and they seek to have dominion over who? Over God himself. Look when we come to the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, And they left off building the city. Therefore, to its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. All right, so a lot that we have read there, and some of it is a little bit of review of what we dealt with last week, but we're going to cover just quickly and review this kingly office, and particularly this idea of this dominion reset that God is doing with Noah. So again, we remember all the imaginations of man's heart is only evil continually by the time we come to the flood. And there is a violent dominion that pulling from um, Cain has become sort of set and settled in mankind's existence. And so man's corruption provoked God to wrath, but we find that there's hope in the midst of this. Noah found favor with the Lord. And we see this again in, the, in Lamech's prophecy that Noah will be a man of the earth, but yet he'll bring, he'll bring relief from the curse. God graciously, by his divine sovereignty, gives Noah grace. And Noah evidences that grace by being declared to be righteous, walking with God, and then proclaiming grace to the world. And we talked about, we looked in the New Testament where Noah is described as a preacher of righteousness and how he condemned the world through his obedience. And so, again, we see that Noah, as he's given this this charge to take care of the animals, he exercises dominion over the remnant of God's creation. He takes care of them. We, We talked about the different things that God said to store up food and to care for and keep these animals alive on the ark. And then upon leaving the ark, what we do is we see Noah offering a sacrifice. And so really, we see Noah fulfilling the three offices given to humanity of prophet, priest, and king. He's responsible for the word of God. He declares the word of God to the world around him and his family. We see him acting as a priest and offering this sacrifice that is a sweet-smelling savor in the Lord's mouth and in the Lord's presence. And then we see him fulfilling the role of king as he 
exercises dominion over creation. And so God gives a new, a renewed command. He tells Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So he blesses them. He commands them again to be fruitful and multiply. And again, notice that one falls after the other. The command to be fruitful and multiply only comes based upon the blessing of God on his people. The same thing happens with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, God blessed them and then commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply. And then he delivers creation into, uh, into Noah's hands he, or, and into mankind's hands. He talks about how the, the beasts will fear him, that there'll be an easing of the difficulty of that dominion mandate now that the flood has ended. And then, of course, God forbids personal violence. And he grounds this forbidding of personal violence in the very fact that mankind is made in God's image. One of the reasons why murder is such a horrific idea is because you are killing that which is made in God's image. And of course, we can push that application even deeper into our own hearts because Jesus intensifies that law and he says, you've murdered your brother if you what? Hate them. And then we see this wonderful gift that God gives as he provides hope in the sign of the rainbow. And so to this day, you know, I, I think we oftentimes look at a rainbow when we talk about how beautiful it is. And it is a beautiful thing. All the different colors. But really, that should be an opportunity for us to remember God's covenant promises. I mean, think about it. God has taken and placed a physical event in our earth as a sign of His promises to us. That He'll never destroy the earth in the same way. And it's also a reminder to us that we are called to exercise dominion over the earth. So there is great hope as we look and read through this story. There's great hope in, in God's mercy. There's great hope in Noah as he has faithfully up until this point exercised these um, roles a prophet, priest, and king. There's great hope in his family that seems to have seen what sin does. They've recognized the wrath of God. I mean, there is abundant hope that perhaps the dominion has truly been reset and maybe Noah is the promised seed of the woman. Maybe he's the one who's going to come and bring relief from the curse. Maybe it will be found in mankind that in man is the hope for salvation and redemption maybe right then we turn the page and we see man's failure and we see this illustrated in two really particular incidences we see it illustrated in noah the best of men then we see it as mankind joins together to seek to make a better society in the story of babel Hope that Noah may be the promised cursed reverser is soon dashed. And what we find is Noah fails to exercise dominion over creation. Look with me again in chapter 9, verse 20. 
So God has renewed all these things. He's, he's set Noah up. He's given him his grace. And then we come to verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil. So there's nothing wrong with that, all right? What was, what was delivered into mankind's hands to exercise dominion? The earth. Everything that had been created had been placed in their hands. And so here's Noah, and how does he choose to exercise his dominion? He becomes a man of the earth. Um, maybe it's because he spent so much time on that boat rocking back and forth, he wanted to be in something that was firmly grounded. I don't know, probably not. But here he is, and he becomes a man of the earth. And what does he do? He plants a vineyard. He becomes a man of the soil, and he keeps a vineyard. Now, here's the thing. There is a blessing from God that we reap the fruits of our toil. And so what does... What does Noah get as the reward for his taking care of and planting a vineyard? Wine. He has the opportunity to make wine and to take that which is the fruit of the vineyard. And if we see in verse 21, what happens? Well, he drinks of the wine and he becomes drunk. Again, now this is, this is again, this... this Working with the ground goes back to his father Japheth's prophecy that Noah will be a man of the earth. And yet, instead of exercising dominion over his vineyard, he allows the fruit of the vineyard to rule over him. He drinks of the fruit of the vine, the wine, and he becomes drunk and lays uncovered in his tent. The Bible is exceedingly clear about drunkenness. It is never acceptable. God is very clear that drunkenness is sin. The Bible makes no changes or, or, or allowances for that. Because what we're doing when we, when we become drunk is we are allowing ourselves not to rule over creation, but we're allowing creation to rule over us. We're no longer controlling what God has given us. We're allowing those things to control us. It is a loss of our own faculties when we become drunk. I think it's important to note particularly that the Scriptures call this out explicitly for kings. In Proverbs chapter 31, verses 4 through 5, it's written, It is not for kings, O Lumel, Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. So this is important to note here. Now, at this point of, in time in Israel's history, there was a particular king. And so the reference here is made towards that one who was charged with guarding and protecting and providing and defending and caring for the nation that has been placed under his rule. But the application to Noah, who is given this new dominion mandate, who is set up as a king over the earth in one sense, the same principles apply. Why isn't it good for rulers to seek out wine to take strong drink? What's the problem with that? Because when they drink, they forget what has been decreed and they pervert the rights of all the afflicted. 
We see that here in the behavior of Noah. Noah drinks, and he essentially passes out in his tent completely naked. Drunkenness led him to not act as a rational sovereign ruling over the earth. It caused him to act like a fool. And so here we have Proverbs warning of that reality. Listen, if you become inebriated, if you let wine and alcohol control you, you're not going to remember what has been decreed and thereby violate God's law. And also, if you're in a position of rulership and, ju- and judgment, you're not going to judge correctly. You're going to pervert justice. And you're going to continue to oppress those who are afflicted. The same focus is found in Ephesians chapter 5. As believers, we are commanded to not get drunk with wine. And then notice how he, what Paul calls that. It is what? Debauchery. Drunkenness brings about debauched conduct. But instead of being drunk with wine, we are to be what? Filled with the Spirit. And here's, here's the point that Paul is making. In the same way that alcohol controls the actions and, and attitudes and things that someone does when they're drunk, in that same way, the Spirit is to control the life of the believer. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's but debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. What does Noah choose here? Drunkenness with wine. And so instead of exercising that dominion over his vineyard, he allows the fruit of the vineyard to rule over him. He's not filled with the Spirit. He's filled with alcohol, which gives way to fleshly indulgence. And that failure brings shame upon him and upon his family. Again, we see that Canaan goes in, he sees the nakedness of his father, he tells his brothers outside. We're not exactly sure of all of what goes on in here, but particularly in verse 24, when Noah awakes from his wine and he knows what his youngest son, as it said, had done to him. So there may have been some mockery that Ham had, or that, um, Ham had done there. We're not exactly sure everything that went on, but we do know that it is a shameful thing. And Noah's two other sons recognize the shamefulness of what Ham had done. And they, they seek to give honor to their father and to cover his own nakedness and to do it in a way that is respectful. Now, here, here's the thing that we have to recognize. We, we come into verse 20 with such hope. Here's Noah. I mean, here is Noah, a guy who has obeyed God, who has faced ridicule from the earth, who has exercised dominion, who has preached righteousness, who has shown his faith in the way that he's lived it out. I mean, here is a man, if there's any man, that maybe we can have hope in. And what does he do? He falls. He's not... The promise curse reverser. He does not exercise dominion as he's been called to do. What should this teach us? It should teach us 
as we're going to see not just here with Noah, but as we're going to see with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, as we're going to see with even Joseph, as we're going to see with the kings of Israel, everyone that is given an opportunity to exercise dominion, what do we ultimately find every single one of them doing? Even David, a man after God's own heart, he ends up falling. So what does this teach us about dominion when it's exercised by men? It will never measure up. There is no man of humanity that can meet the need, that can meet the command that God has given to humanity. It illustrates for us the very clear fact that we need a divine Savior. We need someone to come and to be made, as we saw this morning, in the likeness of men. We need Christ. And so one of the things that we've tried and I've tried to point us to as we've been going through the study of prophet, priest, and king is that there is no man who is a prophet, there is no man who is a priest, there is no man who is a king that equals what Jesus Christ is as prophet, priest, and king. It points us to the need to look to him. So we look at Noah and we see failure. We, there's there's a lot to go into, and we could spend a lot of time talking about um, the, the curses that Noah gives there and how that works its way out throughout time. And then we have, this, we have this multiplication that we see in chapter 10. And we're not going to spend time to go through that. There's a lot there as well. But again, as I mentioned, what we see illustrated here is Mankind is at least obeying some of what God has said, being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. And I mean, we, you know, we look at some of these guys, and uh, like Jochten, he had, let's see, Almadad, Shepha, Hazamareth, Jerah, Hadarim, Uzal, Dikla, Obel, Abimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. So by my count, that's 13 children. All right, that's pretty prolific. I mean, imagine, imagine their grocery bill every week when they went out, all right? There is this clear indication that mankind is growing on the earth. Now, remember what happened the last time before the flood. As mankind propagated, what happened? Did, did things get better or worse? Worse. And humanity fell into sinful actions and sinful desires and rebellious things. Every thought of their heart was only evil continually. And the reality is, is that even when God says that He's not going to destroy the world uh, with, with the flood again, He still admits that mankind's intentions are evil from birth, from their youth. So how does that work its way out? Well, we see that in Babel. Look with me again in Genesis chapter 11. We have this unity and cooperation as mankind comes with one language. And this is a big point that Moses makes here in Genesis chapter 11. There is one language and everyone is saying the same words. And so that brings and fosters cooperation in their exercise of dominion. 
Now, now here's one thing I think we need to, I think we often miss when we think about the story of Babel. Babel was a time of great civic peace. Mankind got along. There's no violence here. There's no rising up against other people and seeking to tear them down and to kill them. They get along instead of violence. There's peaceful unity among humanity. Now, listen to what the world says today as as sort of the penultimate goal for our society today. What do we want? Peace. We want everybody to get along. And, And again, you know, you have the beauty pageants and Miss America. What's the one thing you wish you would do? I want world peace. I mean, you hear that all the time. Peace. We have it here at Babel. However, instead of ruling for the glory of God, humanity seeks to exercise cooperative dominion to make a name for themselves. Again, look at verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now notice what is happening here. What was, what was the command? Be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth, which, in, which requires a level of disbursement. Mankind is now together. They're multiplying, but they don't want to fill the earth. They want to just stay together. They want to exercise dominion but they don't want to do it God's way. And so as a result, seeking to cast off God's way, they seek their own way, and they seek to bring prestige and glory upon themselves. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. I see a lot of parallels with what's happening with Babel and what our society is running headlong into today. We want to be unified. We want to come together. We want to make America great again. I don't mean that necessarily as a negative political statement, but there's a problem when all we're looking to is to make ourselves great. That's the society that Babel We want to make America the greatest nation. We want want to make not just America, let's make the whole world get together so that we can all stand in awe of humanity and its accomplishments. Well, what they do is they build a tower, and the implication here is they build this tower is they want to dethrone God from His throne. Let's have this tower with its top in the heavens. Most likely the tower that they're referring to here would have been what's called a ziggurat. And I don't know if you remember from like history of Siv, but what a ziggurat was. They still have them around in, in the Middle East. They're these sort of square-like structures that would sort of build themselves up, and they were places where worship would happen to all sorts of foreign deities and gods. It's amazing here, though, the god that they seek to worship is not making a name for Baal or Ashtaroth, but they want to make a name out of humanity. Humanity is the God. 
They seek to build this up so that they can stand above the earth and say, look at what we have done. We are the rulers. They seek to bring God under the dominion they have received from Him. And this is very much what we see in humanity. Instead of violently overthrowing each other, they're unified, seeking to violently overthrow God's rule. And this becomes the theme of humanity from now on. Rather than turning in and trying to destroy each other, mankind is going to cooperate and say, let's destroy God. Psalm 2, 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings, plural, of the earth set themselves and the rulers, plural, take counsel together. There's unity here. What is that unity? Against Yahweh, against His anointed, who is Christ. And what do they say? Let's burst upon His bonds apart. Let's cast away their cords from us. In fact, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, there is a determination among the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the council, that they're going to kill Christ. In fact, John 11, 45-48. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what He did, raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in Him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. Now there's something remarkable here about the council, the Sanhedrin. It's going to be made up of Pharisees, people who are part of, the, of that group. It's going to be made up of Sadducees. And it's going to be made up of, of certain officials from the high priest's office or, or council. And what you have is you have groups that are traditionally feuding with each other about theological conclusions. They're feuding with each other. And now they're able to put that aside and to have peace so that they can rail against Christ. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so they get together, and at the end of John 11, in verse 53, it says, From that time on, they seek how they can kill Christ. Have you ever thought about the alliance that was forged in the murder of Jesus? There's several of them that actually happened. First of all, you see the alliance between the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priest's office sort of getting together on that, as we just saw. There's also an alliance forged between Pilate and Herod. As Pilate sends Christ to Herod so that Herod could make judgment on him, and of course after that happens, Herod sends him back to Pilate, says he's your problem. But it says from that time forward, Pilate and Herod became what? Friends. And even at the, cruise, at, the, at the judgment where Pilate sat on his seat and he stood there, he aligned with the crowds and the Jewish leaders 
so that he would kill Christ. A man who Pilate mentioned over and over again was what? Innocent. Unity among humanity. Peace. And from Pilate's perspective, he's thinking, I would rather have peace here than foment foment more uprising, so I'm just going to go ahead and kill this guy that I know to be innocent. All in the name of peace. As humanity seeks to bring God under the dominion they have received from Him. Again, we like to talk a lot about unity. And unity around the right things is vital. But unity, for unity's sake, can leave you supporting the death of the Savior of the world. That's what ends up happening with Christ's death. So what does God do? Look at verse 6 of Genesis 11. Or, I'm sorry, verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. Notice how God notes that they're unified. They all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Listen, from one perspective, they're exercising dominion very, very well. So, verse 7, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So, the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Babel. It's the, the way it's actually pronounced Babel is like, if you, it's nonsense. It doesn't make any sense what's being said. I mean, I would have loved to have been there to see that when all of a sudden they're working together and he's like, hey, take this brick up there. And the guy's like, says something and nobody can understand anybody. God confused their language, the language of all the earth, and the Lord dispersed them from over all the face of all the earth. God breaks this rebellious alliance by confusing their languages and scattering them on the earth. I think it's amazing to note here how God's judgment on mankind's desire to overthrow God and His dominion is actually a means to accomplish His sovereign purposes. See that in Acts 17, 26-27. That God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. It is amazing to see what Paul is saying here as he speaks to um, these philosophers on Mars Hill. And he says, look, God did this. What happened at Babel was actually done as an act of grace so that mankind would recognize that God is near to every single one of us. That everything that is happening in human history is being guided by His sovereign degree, decree. And so it becomes a means for God to call humanity back to Him. What a gracious God! 
that in judging humanity, he graciously calls them back to him. He asked them that they would operate as vice regents under his sovereign control. But what we're going to find as we look forward even more is that mankind's sin is going to continue to exhibit itself in rebellion to and war against God's rule and reign. We'll see it in glimpses of other pagan nations, but the sad thing is is that as we see God making a nation out of Abraham, calling them together, it is His own people who are most prone to throwing off His rule. That those whom God is called to rule over want to tear down that rule and place themselves up on the throne just as Babel did. This is going to be a theme that will carry us through both Testaments until we see in great joy King Jesus winning everything. I think it's also amazing to see how God uses mankind's rebellion for His purposes. When Jesus stood before Pilate and Pilate asked Him question after question, Jesus stood and silently did not answer any of his questions. And so Pilate, who is the Roman curator of, of, uh, of, of the promised land of Israel and that, that entire area of Palestine, he looks at Jesus and he says, Don't you know the authority I have? What an arrogant statement. And Jesus looks at him and says, listen, you don't have any authority unless it's granted to you by my Father in heaven. And that's the wonderful hope, is that even in our efforts to throw off the rule of God, even when we think that we can supplant Him, God works even in that rebellion to accomplish His purposes for our salvation. So, failed dominion. Dominion reset started with the flood, looking to Noah. Noah fails. Humanity comes together. They're united. There's peace. There's no longer violence against each other. But they use that peace to seek to dethrone God and to make a name for themselves. And so next we'll begin looking at how God begins to choose one man and his descendants to bring about the promise that he made to Eve and Adam that the seed of the woman would come and would ultimately subdue the serpent, crushing under his foot his dominion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth we find in it. Lord, I pray that we would seek to cast off hope in ourselves. And as we see these stories illustrating for us again and again the failures of humanity, Lord, that we would find that there is only one human who is both man and God, Jesus Christ, as our only hope, as the only king worthy of truly following. Father, work in our midst by your Spirit today. We pray these things in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen.
Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.